Listen to this portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Brian. It's great to have somebody on our team that's built like the father from the, from the, the father of the Incredibles movie, right? It looks just like him. Yes. Uh, my name is James, and uh, I am the interim lead pastor here, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. And uh, I, I wanted to start out by uh, just telling you a little story. There was this husband and a wife that were driving down the highway. And um, as they were driving, they noticed lights flashing behind them. You ever had that happen? That sickening feeling that comes over you when you're driving and you see those lights behind you? So they got pulled over and a police officer came up to the side of the car and the, the husband unrolled his window and he said, how can I help you, officer? I mean, what's, what seems to be the problem? And uh, the officer said, well, for one, uh, you're going 70 in a 55. And the husband said, oh, officer, I'm sorry, but there's just just no way that's possible. I I couldn't have been going more than 60. And the wife said, oh, honey, I told you five minutes ago you were going 80 miles an hour. And that you were going to get a ticket if you weren't careful. And the husband glared at his wife, you know. And then the police officer um, says, uh, and also, sir, uh, I I noticed that your taillight was out. And I'm going to have to give you a ticket for that as well. And he said, oh, well, officer, you know, I didn't didn't know that the the taillight was out. And the wife said, honey, I told you three weeks ago that your taillight was out. And that if you didn't fix that, you know, you're going to end up getting a ticket. And here we are. He glared at his wife. Again, and then the, then, the, then the police officer says, and finally, I noticed that you're not wearing your seatbelt. And uh, I'm going to have to give you a ticket for that as well. And the husband said, well, officer, you know, when, when you pulled me over, right after you pulled me over, I took my seatbelt off. And the wife said, honey, don't tell him that. You never wear your seatbelt. You've never worn your seatbelt. I'm constantly telling you that you need to wear your seatbelt. And if looks could kill, that poor wife would be dead. And the husband just couldn't contain himself anymore. He turns to his wife and he said, why don't you just keep your big fat mouth shut? And then the officer said, ma'am, does your husband always talk to you like that? And she said, oh no, officer, you know, my, my husband is, is actually very kind. It's, it's just when he's drinking. <laughs> One of the main reasons why 
we experience unhappiness in our lives is because of strained or broken relationships, right? I mean, imagine how great your life would be if you never had strained or broken relationships. I mean, it really is the primary reason why we feel discouraged at times. And when we're not unified, we are not living the life that God intended for us. God has envisioned a life for us that is so amazing. And we self-sabotage that life over and over again in so many ways. Now, prior to the fall... Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were perfectly unified with God and with each other. Everything was perfect. Their relationship was perfect. But after the fall, things got much more complicated. Much more complicated. And what I'd like to do to to begin this message is to go back to Genesis 3 and take a look at what went wrong. You see, we know that Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, and they disobeyed God. They disobeyed God, and when that happened, their eyes were open, remember? Their eyes were open, and they experienced emotions that they had never experienced before. They saw the world in a different light. They experienced fear, guilt, Shame, they felt naked. Remember, they felt naked. They knew in that moment that they had made a terrible decision. A terrible mistake. They had really messed things up. And the first thing that they did, remember what they did? They took fig leaves and they tried to cover themselves because they felt naked and they were ashamed. And then they heard God coming in the garden. He was coming toward them. And what did they do? They hid from him. And then God came and he inquired of Adam. And he said to Adam, you know, I would really like for you to give me an account, essentially, of what's happening here. And in verse 12, Adam responds to God with this. And I love his response. He says, the woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from that tree, and I ate it. Do you see what Adam just did there? Instead of owning the mistake, taking responsibility, asking for forgiveness, and pursuing reconciliation, and hopefully being unified once again, Adam blamed God, and he threw his wife under the bus in the same sentence. That's what he did. And of course, we know that they were separated from God and that they were banished from the garden, right? And if that wasn't bad enough, I want you to imagine that first night outside the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, do you think they were unified? Based on how things went down, I'm betting that Eve was not speaking with Adam. And if Adam had a couch, 
there's a good chance that he would be sleeping on that couch that night, right? Because he broke his relationship with his wife. He undermined his relationship with his wife by blaming her for something that he was equally responsible for. And when we read Adam's response, we say, oh, Adam, 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 Adam. Bless his heart. But we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing all the time. None of us want to admit it when we've made a mistake or that we've said something or done something that was not constructive or hurtful. And when we do, we almost always look for someone to blame, right? If not our spouse, it might be our boss or the kids. And if they're not available, well, then it's the cat and the dog, right? I think a lot of us have cats and dogs just for that reason. We can blame them for things, and they can't say anything in return. And that's a good thing, right? Because if the cats and the dogs could talk, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? I am not uh, a person who escapes from this tendency. And I'm embarrassed to say how many times I have blamed Elizabeth for things that I know are my fault. Things that I should have taken responsibility for. Let me just give you an example. Uh, just, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife gets up every morning and during breakfast, she makes tea. So the first thing she did during breakfast, as usual, was she made a pot of tea and she pours that tea into a thermos so that she can take it to work with her. And when she was done, she took the thermos and she put it on the island, which is kind of like the staging area for us uh, during breakfast time. It's kind of hustle and bustle, getting Eva ready for school, getting her lunch made, getting breakfast ready, getting ready to get out the door. And in my hurry, I knocked over her thermos. And as soon as I knocked over her thermos, I said, Elizabeth, why would you put your thermos right in the middle of our staging area. And she looked at me like, what's wrong with you? I mean, you're blaming me for something that you, you knocked my tea over and now you're blaming me? How many of you have done that? Something like that, yeah? This past week, we were on vacation together. And we uh, decided to do something unusual, so we rented a little houseboat. And we went up the Erie Canal. It was one of the coolest things we've done in a long time. And in the little houseboat, they had a kitchenette. And they had a little tiny uh, table in the bow of the boat where we could have breakfast. Same routine. Elizabeth got up. She made her tea. She set it on the little table. And as I was going by the table, I knocked over her tea. <laughs> and again, I said, Elizabeth, you put your tea right on the edge of the table. And again, she just looked at me like, what is wrong with you? Now, do you see a pattern here? There's a couple things going on here. First, it doesn't matter where Elizabeth puts her tea. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to knock it over. 
Secondly, after I knock it over, I'm going to blame her for doing it, right? Now the question is, why do we do that? Now I knew the second that Elizabeth said, you're going to blame me for that? That she was absolutely right, but I wasn't going to admit that. So I said, well, of course. Now, I know none of you do that, right? None of you have ever blamed anybody for something that you have done. But I know that we simulcast these services. And so somewhere out there, somewhere, someone is watching this service right now, and they're saying, I do that. It might be in Singapore. And they're looking and they're saying, I do that. Watch tomorrow, I'm going to get an email from someone from Singapore. And they're going to say, how did you know? Right now, we are in this series uh, called Living Large, Experiencing the Life that God Intended. Living Large. Now, this week, we're looking at chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. This whole series is focusing on the book of Philippians. And in this chapter, Paul emphasizes the importance of being unified. And he explains some of the things that we do to self-sabotage, some of the things that we do that keep us from being unified in our relationships. Now, we understand the importance of being unified. We understand it. But we may not fully understand the reasons why we are not unified. And in Philippians 2.3... Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So the first defeater is this, do nothing out of selfish ambition, which implies that we're doing some things out of selfish ambition. Now, I like the way uh, the message translation writes this. That is, Philippians 2, 3. It says, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and let others get ahead. I like that. Now, how often do we find ourselves working against the very people that are most for us? The relationships that are most important to us. The people that are supposed to be on our team. We find ourselves working against them. And here's the thing. No team will ever win if they're competing against themselves. Right? You know, if you watch basketball, you will know that the team with the best players probably won't make it to the playoffs because of this reason. When I think about the New York Knicks, for instance, every year they have some of the best players in the league and they almost never win because they're never unified. The coaches never get along with the players. The players don't get along with each other. The owner doesn't like anybody. There's constant chaos. They're not Unified, and even though they have incredible talent, they never go very far. 
Hopefully that'll change. But I don't know when. Because I'm not sure if they understand the root of the problem. Number two, Paul says, do nothing out of vain conceit. Now, vain conceit or conceit is kind of a poor translation for what the, the Greek is actually saying here. If you, if you have the old King James version of the Bible, do any of you use that anymore? Some of you still have it. Uh, it's a little more challenging to read, and so I don't really recommend that you get that version. But sometimes that version is closer in alignment with the original Greek than other translations. And in this version, the, the old King James version, the word for conceit is translated as vain glory. Vain glory. And in the Greek, the word is actually two words, kano doxia. Doxia means glory. That's where we get the word doxology. Glory. And kano means useless. So useless glory. Do nothing out of useless glory or in the pursuit of useless glory. Tell, Paul is telling us that strife, the strife that we experience in our lives, is coming from competition that is rooted in our pursuit of useless glory. Useless glory. And that conflict in our relationships usually comes from our desire for glory. We're trying to create an environment where we receive glory. In both the Greek and the Hebrew, the word glory means weight or significance. And what we really want is to matter. We want to be considered significant. And the way we get that, or try to get that, is by competing with those around us in an attempt to lift ourselves up. You see yourself doing that? We call that rivalry. Rivalry. And it stems from the misconception that our worth comes from distinguishing ourselves from those around us. So we think about the relationships, the spheres of relationship that we have, and we want to set ourselves apart from those people so that we are more distinguished, that we have more glory, that we have more significance. And to do that, we have to put others down or compete with them. For instance, if you find your significance in your intellect, let's just say that you are an incredibly intelligent person. And your entire life, people have been telling you, wow, you are really smart. And you've known that about yourself for a long time. You know that in almost every place that you go, you're going to be the smartest person in the room. And because of that, you will always want to have the last word. You will never want to lose an argument. You'll always want your opinion to be recognized because your sense of self-worth depends upon it. You see that? You know some people like that? Yeah. Maybe it's success. Success. That's a big one here in New York. And if that's you, 
you will want people to recognize your accomplishment. You're always trying to find a way to win. And failure for you, if that's you, is absolutely devastating. It is crushing for you. Now, it could be anything. We could put anything in here. We all have our vices. But regardless of what it is, if we're striving to find glory, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. And whenever we try and get it, by undermining other people around us, or competing, or putting other people down, we're going to undermine the very relationships that we're most dependent upon, the people that matter most in our lives, and we just can't help ourselves. When I blamed my wife for knocking over her tea, what that revealed is that I, at some level, was believing a lie. I was believing a lie. There was a part of me that believed that admitting my mistake would somehow diminish my sense of self-worth. Even though it was just my wife and my daughter in the room. There was something in me. The insecurity, I don't know what it was. But somehow my self-worth was tied to the idea that I cannot admit mistakes. It's called pride, right? And we all struggle with it. And what it, what it reveals is that I'm believing at some level in a lie. And as I said before, sometimes we, we, we try to lift ourselves up by putting other people down. And we think that by doing so, we are lifting ourselves up. Right? That we're protecting our sense of self-worth. But again, that's a lie. In fact, the exact opposite is true. When we put someone down in an effort to lift ourselves up, all that's doing is revealing our own insecurities, our fears, and the fact that our sense of self-worth or significance is wrapped up in something other than God. Something that could never deliver what we're asking it to. And we all fall into it. Number three, Paul says, look not only to your own interests. Philippians 2.4 says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We undermine our relationships when we fail to value other people. When we treat them with less respect than they deserve. And when Paul says, look, not only to your own interests, he's using the Greek word skopos, which is the word that we derive scope from. Scope, like a microscope or a telescope. And in both cases, a microscope or a telescope enables us to see things better. It gives us a fresh more enhanced perspective. Paul is telling us that we need to enhance our perspective. Okay? He isn't telling us, by the way, 
to think less of ourselves. He's not, he's not saying get down on yourself, be down on yourself. Don't, think less of yourself. He's not saying that. He's challenging us to think of ourselves less. You see the difference? There's a big difference between thinking less of ourselves and just thinking less of ourselves. Now, it's natural for us to be self-centered, right? We're kind of wired that way. And, and maybe it's part of our, our, our survival instincts. You, know, you kind of have to look out for yourself and... You know, there's, you know, there's a big bad world out there and you have to navigate things and you need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself because who else is going to, right? I mean, these thoughts are kind of working in and through our lives. They're tapes that are kind of playing in the back of our heads. You might say, well, I'm not, I'm not really self-centered. Who is James to say that I'm self-centered? He, maybe he is. And, and I am. But, but I would like to suggest that you probably are too. And you know how I can prove this? How many of you have had a group picture uh, taken recently with you in it? Yes? Okay, and then the the photographer takes the picture, and then everybody kind of comes around to look at the picture to see how it turned out, right? When you looked at the picture, what was the first thing that you looked for? You. (laughs) You looked for you. And here's what happened next. If you looked good, it doesn't matter what anybody else looked like. You will say, hmm, that is a great picture. I look really good in that picture. And somebody else could be looking off like this or, you know, have their eyes closed or their finger in their nose. But you're going to say, wow, that photographer, oh, my word, talent. Because you look good. Because we're kind of self-centered. You know, it's not like we want to be hurtful. It's just part of who we are. Paul's saying, go ahead and look out for your own interests. You're going to do that anyway. But be concerned about other people's interests as well. Just be cognizant of those around you and what they need. Now, after presenting these sources of conflict or these defeaters, uh, and he, He explains what looks to be a formula for addressing them. But don't be deceived. It's not a formula. It's not a to-do list. And there's nothing that we can do that will fix this for us. Except for the very thing that Paul does next. And he does it in verses 5 through 8. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What is Paul getting at here? Why does he point out all of this brokenness? And all these reasons for disunity, and then suddenly he gives us a picture of Jesus. The character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. He's saying that if Jesus is God, 
and he became a servant and died on the cross for you, then you matter. You matter. And if you matter to the only one whose opinion really matters, why do you feel the need to seek glory all of the time from other people whose, people, whose, whose, whose perceptions really don't matter that much? Why would you live your life constantly on guard that somebody's going to say something or do something that will cause you to feel as though your worth has been devalued? Nobody should have that kind of power over you. Nobody. Not if you're in Christ. And when we find our value and significance... In the fact that we are loved by Jesus, the only one whose opinion really matters, we will be released from that tendency to try and find glory and significance from our peers, from the context of our relational dynamics. And when we are released from that, we're not going to be competing with one another. Or constantly trying to defend ourselves. We will be in a new position where we can be life-giving. Where we can pour into people. And it won't matter what other people say because we're going to know our self-worth and our value. And we're going to know that we're significant because God says we're significant. You see, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is so much more than an example. He is the only authentic source of glory, worth, and significance. And identifying with him, identifying with him, and taking on his character is the key to being unified. That's the key. Just recognizing who you are in Christ. Let me illustrate this with a modern example. There is a, a foreign film called The Three Seasons. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a series of, of, of random stories. My wife would actually love The Three Seasons. I know she would. Uh, it's, it's a series of random stories that have a common theme. All of the stories have a common theme running through them. And one of them is the story of two Vietnamese people. And uh, one is a man by the name of Hai who is a, a rickshaw driver. And the other is a beautiful prostitute by the name of Lan. And they both live in the same city. And while they don't have anything in common with one another, other than the fact that they're both living in poverty and trying to figure out how to lift themselves out of that, they share the common thread of feeling as though their desires and their deepest needs have not been met. And they're looking for ways to meet those unmet dreams. Hai, this is kind of the twist, Hai is desperately in love with Lan. He loves her, but kind of from afar. Because he knows that he could never afford her. He can't even enter into her social strata. He doesn't have the funds. 
And Lan, as a prostitute, lives in grinding poverty. And she wants nothing more than to be lifted out of that poverty. And her dream is to become part of the world in which she works. She's constantly staying at the most luxurious hotels. But she never sleeps there. She just works there. And she hopes that prostitution will one day lift her out of that poverty and give her that life for real. That's what she's hoping. And as the story goes, Hi, the rickshaw driver, enters a rickshaw racing competition. And he wins. And there's a cash prize for winning the rickshaw racing race. And so he has suddenly all this money. For him, it's a lot of money. More money than he's ever had before. And so he takes that money and he pays for a night with one. And they go to this really fancy hotel. But to everyone's surprise, Hyde doesn't want to sleep with Lon. He doesn't sleep with her. He says that all he wants to do is watch her fall asleep in peace. So that she can experience the life that she's so sought after for real, just for one night. At first, Lon can't believe it. She can't believe it. She's convinced that Hyde must be trying to manipulate her or pull one over on her or gain power over her in some way because that's always been the pattern. But when she realizes that Hyde used his one chance at power, his one chance to lift himself out of poverty, to give her a taste of the dream that she's always had, it totally transforms her. She's wrecked. So much so that she is unable to t- return to a life of prostitution after that encounter. Isn't that an amazing story? I tell you that story because that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what he's done for us. He is not just a model to emulate. What Jesus did for you and me is so much bigger than that. When we understand that, it should transform the way that we see ourselves and also the lives of others. That's what it should do. We'll never be the same again. And we'll begin to see the nature of significance and worth and glory in a new light. Because we'll know the source. That said, we still live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a broken world and we still have a sin nature. Which means there will be times when we operate out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And we're still going to have the tendency to put ourselves first in an effort to bolster our sense of self-worth or significance. But Paul is reminding us that our true identity and our true sense of worth is found in Christ. And that we no longer need to be slaves to sin or at the mercy of every single opinion from every person we cross paths with. Right? 
We don't have to believe those lies anymore. That's what Paul's saying. Those lies that undermine our relationships and keep us from being united, unified, that keep us from living the life that God intended. Now, one of the things that I've noticed about Paul, and I love this, and this was kind of a new uh, realization for me. Whenever Paul addresses problems in the church, and you know he started a whole bunch of churches, and almost all of the letters that he wrote were to churches, and a lot of them are addressing issues that came up in the churches. Whenever he addresses those issues, he does so by challenging those people within that church to worship Jesus. To worship Jesus. Because he knows that a to-do list or some sort of formula is never going to cut it. It's never going to change them from the inside out. But if we worship Jesus for who he is, if we really recognize him for who he is and what he's done, rivalry and conflict and vainglory just falls away. It's not something that we need to pursue and constantly defend ourselves for. And that's the key to being unified. At every turn, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. And you want to know why he did that? Because his glory was our salvation. That's where he got his glory. By setting the stage in such a way that every one of us could come into a lasting, eternal relationship with the creator of the universe so that we would know our true sense of worth and self. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We don't have to do it ourselves. And our significance is never, ever dependent upon anything anyone else says about us. Because Jesus looks down at you and he says, if you were the only person in the world, I would have died for you. Because that's how much value you have in my eyes. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing your heart to us through patterns of brokenness that we struggle with every day. I think about the strife and the discord and the disunity and the inability that I have at times to be unified with my wife or my team here at Trinity or my friends or even people in the subway. And so often it comes down to a lie that somehow my sense of worth is being jeopardized by the way I'm being treated or the way people think about me. And that's a lie. And Lord, 
Paul shows us in this passage that it doesn't have to be that way. We can recognize the depth of your love for all of us and recognize that we are significant and that we do have worth. And our glory comes from being associated with you. Thank you for giving us that opportunity through the work that you did on the cross in Jesus' name. Amen.